You are listening to the Fragment podcast. I will talk about the 17th discussion of Al-Ghazali's Incoherence of the Philosophers and Ibn Rushd's uh, response. This is the book and the particular chapter of the book for which Ghazali has been commonly blamed for supposedly destroying the mind of Islamic civilization. The scholarly consensus now is that that's a rather hyperbolic accusation. However, most of the examinations of the subject matter of that chapter of the book have been surface level, and therefore I'm going to attempt to examine it more closely, and that's going to require some time. <laughs> so, And they are there for anybody who is interested in actually taking a close look at what Ghazali actually says in the 17th discussion and what Ibn Rushd actually says in response to him uh, and, you know, basically what the intellectual context of that is, what the implications are, trying to come to terms with this question it raises as to whether Muslims or anyone for that matter can believe that God acts in the world and at the same time maintain that nature is an ordered system. He has uh, said that, you know, he can approach the philosopher challenge in two ways. The first approach is that uh, he says God creates the burning, for example, when the fire touches cotton and it's not a necessity that the cotton burn. Right, just because the uh, fire touched it, and he says that rather the cotton burns with the the contact with fire instead of by it or because of it. And then he argues, right, that the only actual um, uh, proof that there is for that is, is by experience and observation. And observation cannot prove that the cotton actually burns because of the fire touching it, rather than just with it. That's a common problem of induction. That was his objection to the first position, the idea that the fire itself by itself is the agent for burning the cotton and nothing else, just the fire. His real issue though is with the second position, which is actually the philosopher position, Ibn Sinas position in Al-Farabi's, which is that, um, that basically God is the cause, uh, but that God is kind of a necessarily acting principle. So theory here is that there is kind of an order in nature, and things happen in nature basically because of the principles of this natural order and not because of the individual things. So instead of the individual fire being the cause of the burning of the cotton, rather it's the essence of fire, which is part of the uniform natural order of things, which is ingrained into and determines everything that happens. And that is ultimately rooted in metaphysical principles, and God is the one who brings to existence things according to those principles, so that things exist and happen in the only way that they possibly can, uh, and God is just the one who sort of turns it on, yeah, so to speak, the way that, you know, the sun shines on things and, and has effects on them. And that's why he objects to him by saying, we do not concede that the principles do not act by choice, and that God does not act voluntarily. Part of the question that I'm asking myself and that anybody who reads this has to ask is, what's the relation between these two different approaches? Are they really different approaches? Are they mutually exclusive? Do you have to, do you have to choose between one way to approach the question and, and the other way? 
or are they even in fact two two approaches? I'm considering the this this option here that they're not really two approaches. So in order to do that, I think we need to be really clear on what the first approach actually is. What he says here is just that we do not concede that the principles do not act by choice and that God does not act voluntarily. And that seems to me to mean just that God could have made things differently than they are. And so then it really does entail or it, or, or it implies that the burning of cotton when it's touched by fire or on contact with fire actually depends on God's will and the sense that cotton might have been touched by fire and not have burned. So that's what we have so far. Now, we see that the objection of the philosopher that he uh, relays here is that, as we said before, if that were the case, then nature would be completely chaotic and random and unintelligible, and we would never know, you know, what's going to happen. And like I said before, my kids outside uh, the office here watching TV might be fruits right now, as far as I know, as far as I could know, because there's no telling what's going to happen because God can do anything, as they are saying. I think the real answer to this we're going to see is that God can do anything, but he acts in an orderly way. So we could imagine or conceive a variety of possible universal orders of the cosmos, right? If you were to think of the cosmos as a kind of list of things that are going to happen or that happen in the cosmos from its beginning to its end, like a full description of the universe from its beginning to its end. We can, we can call that a possible world, actually, as, as philosophers do nowadays. And let's say that there can be a number of such possible worlds that are different from each other, but each one as uniformly ordered as the other and as perfectly ordered as the other. So from eternity, God could choose which one to enact. And so which one he does enact then depends on his will. And yet it be the case that that actual cosmos that he enacts is perfectly ordered and one which anybody who then lives in it and experiences it can basically know what to expect and to study it scientifically because the events therein are, are actually predictable. And that would be a case where God acts by will and everything that happens depends on his will. And yet at the same time, the universe is not absolutely chaotic and random or unpredictable as the philosopher objection has it here. Though that leaves this question, if a number of different possible universes, if there are a number of different possible universes, it seems to be able to predict what's going to happen requires us to know which one of those uh, universes we actually live in. And it seems like we would not be able to know which one we live in unless we had complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen in that universe. Imagine, for instance, as if every event in that cosmos that God actually creates is written in the preserved tablet, right? The Lahmafuz. That would be a sort of record or full description of that world. And we don't have right access to that complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen. We only have knowledge of what we have experienced or gathered from, you know, the people before us who've recorded their experiences. And that's what we call 
right? Natural science. The, the idea here is that we would have to be able to, through natural science, know that certain things necessarily follow from others in order to be able to know or be able to have any, you know, like for example, to be confident that my kids are not turned into fruits uh, in the living room now. Yeah, it would require me to have knowledge that certain things necessarily follow from others and certain events necessarily require certain conditions in order to happen. But if that requires us to know everything that actually is going to happen in the world that we live in, that's to say if that requires us to know which cosmos we actually live in, then it seems that's a tall order. In any case, it does raise the question, how do we know about nature, right? And what uh, does natural knowledge consist in? And that's the question that underlies this really, this discussion here, part of it, right? And Ghazali has questions to answer as much as the philosopher. And we saw that the way he answered that was to say, well, even if uh, other universe is possible, we don't really know which one of these universes we live in. Basically saying, if, if it were required for us to know which universe we're living in, in order to actually know what's not going to happen in order for me to know that my kids aren't fruits, <laughs> then their their objection would be sound, right? The philosopher objection would be sound. But he says that God creates in me the knowledge that my kids aren't fruit and that he did not make them fruit. So I don't have to, it doesn't have to be the case that only one world is possible. And I know that that's the only possible world that I could be living in, in order for me to know that my kids haven't turned into fruits in the in the living room. Because God is the one, he's saying, that creates in me the knowledge that my kids are not fruits. It's not because I know and I've grasped uh, some kind of universal necessary principles that determine nature and that allow me to correctly infer that they didn't turn into fruits because that would violate those natural laws. But we saw again that that raises that question, how exactly then does my knowledge actually relate to the fact because... Uh, it seems like if God creates my knowledge and God creates the actual, you know, future fact or unknown fact that is a possible contingent fact, how then does my knowledge actually relate to the fact? Because it seems like knowledge conforms, as Ibn Rushd, you know, objects. Ibn Rushd says that knowledge conforms to the real, right? And knowledge is a relation uh, between the intellect and the actual real world. But if I'm going to say now that knowledge isn't caused by the nature of that world, but rather it's just created by God, again, the question, as I asked, what if God creates in me the knowledge that my kids are not fruits, but he actually did turn them into fruits? So would it still be knowledge? I'm knowing that my kids are not turned into fruits because God created that knowledge, even though in fact, the kids are fruits. If we say no, because knowledge requires that the thing known be the fact and be true, then it seems that there's a necessary kind of relation between its being knowledge and the world, not just its being knowledge and be create, being created by God. And that's a problem with that answer. So let's just cut that now and go on to this second approach. Well, I'm going to try to argue that the two approaches aren't really different. And maybe my argument is not going to be a very strong one, or maybe you'll find some holes in it. So, you know, I want you to try to 
comprehend what I'm trying to say and then give me a critique if you find any weakness because I want the thought process to be as clear and strong as I possibly can make it. With regard to the second approach, I made, I think, a mistake in the PowerPoint slides here, but I think it's a happy mistake. And there are such things as happy mistakes. I'm committed to believe that because if there were not, my life would be a lot less happy than it has been. <laughs> this one is a happy mistake, I think, because I wrote up here that Ghazali's second approach is to admit intrinsic natures. Mm -hmm. Later, though, I have it as essential natures. And I think it is a mistake to characterize Ghazali as admitting intrinsic natures for a reason that is important for us, or let's say it will be important for us, I think, to keep in mind when we think about this. So what he says there is that the second approach with which there is deliverance from those vilifications, that's those accusations that your position will entail that the world is a crazy and un, unintelligible place, is for us to admit, either admit uh, uh, sincerely or for the sake of argument, we'll leave that uh, in sort of as it is ambiguous and decide for ourselves later what he intends there. But anyway, is for us to say that fire is created in such a way that if two similar pieces of cotton come in contact with it, it would burn both, making no distinction between them if they are similar in all respects. So that's different, remember? We go back to the miracle, right? So we should probably think about human flesh rather than cotton because there was no miracle at stake where a piece of cotton was put in a fire and didn't burn and, you know, and, and, and people became Muslim or something like that because of that cotton didn't burn, right? The miracle was that the prophet Ibrahim was placed in the fire, remember, and the fire didn't burn him. So <clears throat> it's really human flesh rather than cotton that it's in, it's in question here. Ghazali just wants to assert that when Ibrahim was placed into the fire, it wasn't necessary for God to sort of change Ibrahim's flesh to something that's not flesh or change the fire into something that's not fire. And that's because Ghazali wants to say that it's not a necessity that when flesh is in contact with fire, the fire, the flesh burn. Now he's basically answering in such a way to say, right, that anytime two samples of human flesh, right, are brought into contact with fire, the fire will burn both, making no distinction between them if they are similar in all respects. So now he's going to argue that they may not be similar in all respects, and yet they both be human flesh. He was previously answering an argument that, well, if one of them doesn't burn, then it can't be human flesh, because human flesh has an essence, right, such that uh, determines that it will burn when it's in contact with fire, and if not, it's not actually flesh. It loses its essence or nature and becomes something different. Here he seems to be saying, yes, then, that things have essential natures. He's saying that fire is created in such a way. It's created in such a way that that happens. Such that individuals with the same nature necessarily behave similarly under similar conditions. As we're going to see, one of the things he's going to say is that, well, it's not always the case that the conditions are similar. Right? And the ways in which the conditions can be different are not encompassed by our knowledge of nature at any time. There can always be some new way in which a condition can be different, which we can't rule out. 
So he says that this behavior can be disrupted, however, by a change in the quality of an individual which does not compromise its essential nature. And again, the example was, for instance, somebody who puts talc all over his body and essentially is like some fireproofing material, right? Either talc or we can just imagine any kind of fireproof material or some substance that has that quality of insulating some flesh from fire and then sitting in a fire and not getting burned. That doesn't sort of violate the essence of flesh because the flesh remains flesh. It's just that there's this other thing that also has a nature and its nature empowers it to act in such a way so as to insulate the flesh from the fire so that the flesh is not burned by the fire, right? Now, to sustain the claim that flesh on contact with fire necessarily burns and it's not possible that it not burn unless it ceased to be flesh, then the person would have to rule out the possibility of any kind of substance like this with another nature that could actually interfere or impede with the act of fire on the flesh. And so, you know, because otherwise it wouldn't be necessary. It would be possible that flesh not burn on contact with fire. And it seems here like instead of actually being, you know, defending the possibility of scientific knowledge, the philosopher objection here uh, that Ghazali is considering seems to m turn science into something more than what it really is. It seems to entail that, no, that the possibility of scientific knowledge of nature requires that we have complete and absolute knowledge of, of everything in nature so as to rule out the possibility of anything as yet unknown you know, popping up or emerging that would sort of change the way we would expect things to happen. So what he's going to say here, right, obviously, is that, you know, when uh, Abraham is put into the furnace, it's possible for God to create a quality peripheral to the essence of his flesh or the essence of the fire, uh, which actually impedes the fire's action without violating the essence of anything, without violating any natural law. To put it in terms of natural law, he'd be saying it could be possible that there are principles and laws in nature which we're not aware of and that God sort of just acts within those and, in, and employs those principles in bringing about an event which is not a violation of necessary natural law or not a violation of uh, what we would think of as a necessary natural law, but simply a very unusual and unprecedented event. Uh, the, the causes of which and the natural mechanisms of which we're not aware of would have had no way to actually predict or anticipate. So as he says, one who has not witnessed this will deny it. Not ever having observed it does not demonstrate its impossibility in denying that God has the power to create qualities and things that alter their normal behavior without changing their intrinsic natures is just like that. He's basically saying there's so much about nature we don't know. Our, our knowledge of nature uh, can never reach a point where we can demonstrate that, you know, anything outside of what we have already experienced or come to understand is impossible. That's just the problem of induction. <clears throat> the question then we can ask as we go along is, 
whether what he says here so far contradicts, you know, what he said before about God's acting by voluntary will and things not happening of necessity. And as I said before, I think not, because what we're talking about here is a natural order, right? So the things that occur in the world, in the cosmos that does exist, may all conform to an order which is internal to the cosmos and which is internal to what we're essentially going to say the order of God's single act of creation in this cosmos. And yet is such that God might have acted differently. He could have created a completely different cosmos with a completely different order, but one which would be equally uniform and equally orderly uh, if we want to proceed on the premise that God would only act in the most orderly way and he would only create in an orderly way, right? There's two reasons why we wouldn't want to do this that Ibn Rushd gives, which I think are quite compelling. Ibn Rushd says that if a thing doesn't have its, you know, sort of an essence and definition, which is uh, commensurable with a uniformity in behavior in different circumstances, then that thing wouldn't actually have any in any mahiya, right? It wouldn't really have a, a, there wouldn't be something that it is. And if things did not have these definitions based on difference is in their uniform patterns of behavior, there wouldn't be any distinction between one thing and another. If fire didn't burn flesh and ice didn't make flesh cold, then there would be no distinction between fire and ice. And it wouldn't make any sense to say that God created fire or he created ice because there's nothing there to say that he created. So if we're committed to the notion that something exists, that God did create something, then Ibn Rushd is essentially arguing we're, we're, we're committed to the notion that things have essences and definitions which entail certain uniform patterns of behavior. And I think that's pretty compelling. Uh, another consideration he brings uh, is that it's the nature of the intellect to discover and to understand the reality of things. So if there were not a reality of things, and if nature was not an orderly uh, system, which was intelligible, then it would be impossible, the realization of intellect would be impossible. Um, and Ibn Rushd, in line with the philosophy of intuition, and I think in line with really an Islamic intuition, places a high value on the intellect and the realization of the intellect in the human being as core to God's purpose in creating in the, in the first place. In a world in which there were there, there was no actual essential reality and, and, and nature was not an orderly system, would not be one in which intellect could be realized. And that goes back to that question again that I posed for Ghazali just saying, well, God creates in us the knowledge. Well, you know, if, if knowledge in our minds was just something that God can create, like he creates dreams or hallucinations or fantasies, that its being knowledge doesn't require any connection to the real the reality of the world, then it doesn't seem like we have any basis of understanding the distinction between the realization of intellect and knowledge and simply the concoction of fantasies and falsehoods or delusions. So the notion that intellect is something which is valuable 
and which is um, a special kind of creation of gods. And the notion that we're going to make a special distinction between truth and falsehood seems to make necessary for us to understand that, that, that God's act actually be orderly. And the sense that everything that does exist across the history of the whole cosmos behaves in a uniform pattern such that one, it actually can be a thing which he created. And secondly, that the cosmos as a whole can be something which is intelligible and discoverable. According to this paradigm or framework whereby God's purpose in creating the human being is to know him and his reason for creating the universe and the cosmos that the human being lives in is as a means for the human being to come to know God through discovering and knowing God's creation. If God's creation was not something which is something that can be known and discovered in such a way that that discovery leads to knowledge of God, then that whole framework and paradigm doesn't make any sense. And so I think there's something really strong about this philosopher objection, which Ghazali himself brings. And I think Ghazali brings that to the table here because he also knows that it's strong, but he wants to deal with this objection, right? He wants to understand the universe as orderly and intelligible in, in this way without sacrificing the, the role of God's will. Because in order for, for Ghazali, in order for it to really be a creation, so in order for the cosmos to really be something by which one can come to know God, it's not simply the fact that the universe is orderly and functions according to an intellectual pattern or an intelligible pattern, it's also the fact that it is contingent on God's will, that it may have been different, right? Because for to be a creation means, you know, to really be created. And that means that uh, there's creativity involved. There's no creativity involved in a light bulb. You just turn the light on and the light shines out. The sun doesn't create the sunlight. It just shines it out and lights up things. So these analogies to God is just the one who gives existence to essences which are predetermined and which in some way predetermine what God can make. Uh, for Ghazali, this is not true creativity. That's why we have to understand uh, him as conceiving a range of possible cosmic orders. Because whatever God, we can say whatever God, whichever universe or cosmos God might have created, let's say, would be one which reflects his wisdom his intellect and his aim and objection objective in creating that objective being right to create a creature with intellect who can be known by by knowing his creation by knowing the cosmos that god created and such a universe would have to meet certain conditions not any universe a random crazy universe right where Anything can happen. My kids could turn into fruits, but God could create in me the so-called knowledge that they're not fruits, but it doesn't matter because there doesn't have to be any relation between what I think and what the world is really like in order for it to be knowledge. This is not something which can, can facilitate that objective. It's not something that God would create. Yeah, we still have a number of potential ways the world can have been, and which are equally ordered and equally wise and equally intelligible and equally optimal for suiting this divine purpose 
and God's creativity, which one of those actually is actualized and realized and exists, is depending on God's will. So we have it both ways here, I think. God acts by will, and yet at the same time, things have essences. Now this takes us to, to the question of the intrinsic natures. Because if fire, for example, has an intrinsic nature, and that's where my mistake was happy, I think, because I don't think it's right to say that it has an intrinsic nature. And the reason is because I think to think of it in this way, this way that I believe Ghazali is thinking of it, or basically that I think Ghazali should be thinking of it, if he wants to um, achieve his philosophical objectives and theological objectives. He should think that the actual nature of fire is not some independent thing about fire which determines that fire behaves in the way that it does under all the conditions it behaves in the cosmos. No, he should think of the nature of fire as just that behavior. So let's imagine then again that we have this lahmalfuz, this record of everything that, that occurs in the cosmos in this existing cosmos. And then let's say that we have uh, in there a description of everything that fire is gonna do in the cosmos. So at a certain point in time and place, it's gonna touch some cotton and, and then the cotton will burn. And another point in time and place, it'll touch some cotton which is covered with talc. And, and then in that case, the cotton will not burn. And whenever a fire touches human flesh, the flesh will burn. But in this one case, when Ibrahim is in the fire, it's not going to burn. Yeah, let's say that's all in the record. And in each case in the record, there's also some kind of reason or there's some kind of other condition, right, which is different. So when Ibrahim is in the fire, his flesh doesn't burn. But the, the other times that, that you know, uh, fire touches flesh, the person's flesh does burn. Uh, but in the case of Ibrahim, according to this record, let's say, there's going to be some something else that God created in between the fire and Ibrahim, as Ghazali was talking about. When you actually put that into the calculation and, and analyzing the entirety of the history of the cosmos, you, you end up with a cosmos which is still orderly and uniform. That's to say, you won't have a cosmos where fire touched flesh one time and it burned, and then fire, fire touched flesh another time and it didn't burn and there was no difference between the two and there was no reason. So then you have a world with no reason or you have a world which at bottom things happen without reason. The idea here is that in our natural world, the cosmos that we live in, everything that happens happens for a reason. And that's the, if that's the case, all you need is the description of the world as a whole, the whole cosmos, be such that whenever these unusual events happen, there's some description of that event. There's something about that event that is different from other events that are similar in other ways, but have different results, such that that difference in the circumstance explains the difference in the result. So it may be that, I don't know, God created, uh, you know, a kind of a talc or some other kind of covering of substance that we don't even know about over the body or flesh of Abraham. And then Ibrahim's flesh didn't burn, and yet it remained flesh. And at the same time, the universe remained an orderly and uniform cosmos. That's what I think's gotta, gotta happen here. And then that way, I believe that these two approaches are actually now consistent with each other, or compatible with each other.
the the bottom line is that whenever we we actually observe events in the world, we observe you know what we think of or what we call causal processes, right? Causes having certain effects within a set of circumstances, a set of background conditions which affect and play a role in what actually happens. And the complete explanation of what happens doesn't just take into account the single agent like fire, right? And then the patient caught them. It takes into account the entirety of the of the circumstances that are in, involved. As an example, we can say, we, we wouldn't say that water necessarily boils at 100 degrees Celsius. And maybe the philosopher here, we maybe would they say, oh, we know that water necessarily boils, boils at 100 degrees Celsius, right? If the fire touches the water and the heats the water up to 100 degrees Celsius, then the water will boil. It must boil. If it doesn't boil, then the world is total chaos and we can't understand anything. Well, no, that's not true. You go to the top of the Mount Everest and then the water boils at a different temperature. And that doesn't mean that the world is complete chaos. That just means that there's background conditions, which we didn't actually, we weren't aware of. And then when those background conditions change, what happens is not as we expected on the basis of past experience. What happens is different because <clears throat> there are so many conditions involved that we don't understand. And that's not incompatible with the notion that the world, given and taking into account all those background conditions, which we don't understand, remains an orderly place where things have essences. It does, however, mean that we can't think of those uh, natures as intrinsic in that sense, because to be intrinsic means that the thing has a nature on its own without irrespect, uh, irrespective of its relation to other things, right? And that's where I, I, you know, I need to go back and explain that a bit. My mistake was there. Why I shouldn't call it an intrinsic nature. If Ghazali says fire is created in such a way that if two similar pieces of cotton come into contact with it, it would burn both, that means that the nature of fire is described in terms of what will happen to pieces of cotton when they come in contact with fire. In other words, fire, the nature of fire, is essentially reduce, irreducible to uh, the ways that it will behave and, and the ways that other things will be affected by it when they interact with it. And if we were to remove those other things and we were to remove that sort of behavior from the equation, there's really nothing left there. So imagine, let's say, God created a universe with just fire and nothing else, no cotton and no things that could be burned by fire or which would be affected by fire. Well, how could we describe the nature of fire then? Well, we can't say that the nature of fire is that burns because what does it burn? It has to burn something else. It has to affect something else. And so the intrinsic nature, right, uh, in, in that sense, doesn't really exist. It's unintelligible. And we're going to find Ibn Rushd himself, he's very eloquent in bringing that out. Although I think, uh, you know, I don't think he, he saw and people haven't really seen how what he says there resonates with, the, with, with what Ghazali is actually saying here. In the end of his response, Ibn Rushd tells us that, for example, intellect cannot be realized in an organism without a hand, right? Because the hand is the organ and with which the human being writes and writing and communicating is the activity uh, by which intellect is realized, right? So if you were to imagine, let's supposedly an intellect uh, created without a body, then such a supposed intellect would have no means or mechanism 
by which to sort of realize or let's say display its activity because intellect is an activity that would be like fire trying to think of fire existing in a universe where there's nothing but fire so there's nothing to burn so fire is burning the burning the behavior of burning is what makes fire fire so there's also a certain uh, behavior which makes intellect intellect and if we have it the, the uniform behavior is actually the, uh, the the necessary condition for the realization of an essence and a nature then we can't really think of a nature as something independent of that behavior so that we're going to now claim that the essence is something which determines and creates and causes that behavior. No, it's just compatible and consistent to say, and it's more coherent actually to say, that God creates the behavior. God created the cosmos in the sense that God in his eternal knowledge and will from eternity has uh, determined every single event that's going to happen that happens in the cosmos and the natures of things is nothing other than a kind of a summation so to speak of this behavior because in fact that is it's the behavior and those actual particular events across time that together constitute that nature that's the real the realization of that nature in fact consists in what actually happens and that nature is not something independent of what actually happens, which sort of now is the cause or the thing that determines or the agent of what happens. And we can understand it this way, going back then and understanding, as we discussed earlier, God's timeless eternity and the fact that um, in, in his, his will and knowledge, everything is present for, uh, timelessly. Um, once we actually... We arrive at the conclusion that God is not determined by time and not related temporally to things and his eternity is timeless, if we draw the implication, we'll understand that the essence of something doesn't have to be a kind of a fact which exists in time before the actual behavior occurs. Because the truth and the fact of the actual events in the cosmos exist timelessly in this uh, will and knowledge of God. And so, therefore, uh, the essence or the supposed nature doesn't have to be something that is somehow independent of that whole system of events. And it doesn't have to be something that is pre-existing and then determines the, that pattern of events. The pattern of, the pattern of events already is a fact, so to speak already in a certain metaphorical sense. Again, it's, you know, God's will and knowledge of everything is timeless, right? So, <clears throat> in terms of the theories of time, we have to think of it in, in a B-series theory of time rather than an A-series. But that's a little bit uh, off, uh, a bit of a digression, but it's very connected here, yeah? So, to pursue this more, we have to discuss that some more as well. Speaking about time, uh, another way for Ghazali to flesh out this approach, we can call it this sort of accelerated hylomorphism. Now, remember the philosopher have a framework of matter and form. This is the hylomorphic uh, uh, system. According to them, change is when matter receives new forms, right? After that matter was properly prepared for it. So 
this is related to the miracle, specifically the miracle of a, a staff being turned into a snake. And the idea here is that a stick, right, the philosopher would argue, cannot just turn into a snake because a stick is, is wood, you know, and a snake's body is an organic a system and it can only be realized in a different kind of matter than a snake. For a stick to turn into a snake, really what would have to happen is that the stick would have to decompose, break down into its more basic elements, go into the earth, which may then come back in a plant, and then, you know, the plant may be eaten by an animal, you know, and then in, in some roundabout process, right, then that matter, that basic matter would, you know, some of it be incorporated into the body of a snake. But matter has to go through a lot of different phases in order for it to actually be incorporated into the body of a snake because matter is, you know, this isn't unformed matter. You know, different kinds of matter has different forms. And that's why, for example, Ghazali in the, or later, uh, when he talks about this, he says, you know, yeah, uh, iron cannot really just turn straight away into a turban uh, because a turban has to be, you know, made of cloth and has to have certain kind of features and qualities, which iron as a kind of material would have to be really changed into something not iron before it could actually take on those qualities that would allow it to be a, a turban. Ghazali here then is going to accept this hylomorphism and say, yeah, change is the reception of a new form by matter and you know in order for that to happen certain phases have to occur right it has to go through certain phases but there's no reason why it might not go through it that so those phases in, in a really really quick time right so normally it might take a really long time you know for uh, the matter of a stick to eventually you know sort of become and become be incorporated into the body of an animal through sort of, you know, a lengthy and involved natural process. But given that that's, you know, the case, uh, God can, you know, cause that cycle to happen in a very short time so rapidly that for all witnesses, it appears to be that the stick turns straight away into a snake. But it's just that, you know, all those phases happen really rapidly. And there's no reason... Uh, there's no demonstration on the basis of, you know, from the necessity of those phases itself, from the theory of matter and form, that, you know, a shorter time is impossible, is any less possible than a longer time. Uh, so there we have it. We have a explanation of the miracle of a stick changing into a snake, which is, uh, Ghazali is offering as compatible with this uh, theory of natural order that the philosopher are committed to and therefore compatible with the uh, concept of a natural order that is absolutely uniform and um, intelligible ultimately.